Hey YouTube, it's Dimitri, and today we are going to be talking about more dicey government intervention as usual. Um, I don't try to talk about these, I, I would like them just to go away, uh, but unfortunately it seems like the banking industry has gone way off the rails, and I've talked a little bit about this, and I'm going to touch on this on why this is coming to fruition and why I feel like I'm a crazy person. So I know many of you are like, Dimitri, none of this is true, and then I, I keep thinking in my head like, you know... Maybe, maybe it's not true. Like maybe I'm just blowing things out of proportion or maybe I have a bias or a slant with it. And then I have people in the industry, they're like messaging me behind closed doors being like, Dimitri, this is ridiculous. This is, this is absolutely going on. Uh, we can't stand for this. Um, but yeah, I don't want to say anything. I'm like, I know, I get it. Uh, but let's, let's dive in because I'm having now these weird multiple faction, I don't know, multiple pieces all coming together here that are all kind of tying into a, I guess, a narrative or a storyline or I don't even know what's going on here, guys. So I'm just going to talk about what's happening and what I've been experiencing and then let you draw the conclusions on your own. Um, but then the real issue is coming down into uh, my area of me going back into there. I made a presentation a while ago. So many of you know, I went to Princeton, I went to UTD um, and I presented this this uh, this presentation on, detect, on detecting unintentional model biases and statistical and machine learning models. Uh, the reason I list both of these is because there's a lot of concern on machine learning is going to be biasing and making bad predictions, um, especially the current black box approach, which is, you know, everybody under the sun runs out there, downloads Python, gets all these packages loaded in churns data through it and gets an awesome prediction and nobody knows what's going on behind the scenes. And then you have the banking industry. So I, I applaud them for this pat on the back for government in some senses on this as well. Uh, a lot of the CCAR mandates of adding in model risk management, which is what we call validation, second line of defense, uh, it oversees those building the models. So we've done a great job in banking of developing this. I love this. This is what's really built a lot of the risk practices inside of myself, the things I eat, sleep, and breathe is coming from the banking industry and the fact that I do think we should understand every single thing going into these models because they impact consumers and we don't want to be discriminating against consumers or businesses or anybody else. So what we should do is really focus on building solid models on a model development team. And then you have an independent model validation team or model risk management. And that team actually directly reports into the CRO and the CRO actually reports directly to the board of directors. So there's no tie into the CEO. I mean, there's like a, a dotted line, like technically the CEO works with the CRO and, you know, they work together and sure, if they're good friends, I'm sure that, you know, your risk team's probably failing miserably. But at the end of the day, I think it's been a really good thing we've seen that. And so I made this presentation um, specifically on how we detect them looking through residual analysis. And it's nothing super technical, but it, I made this presentation and maybe I'll make it on the YouTube channel. I don't know. Uh, but it goes through basically how we're currently doing that. And the way we're currently doing that is we go in and say, you know, I'm concerned about potential discrimination within these different sorts of groups. It could be age, gender, race, marital status. Um, I don't know. You pick the group. You can come up with some group. It could even be like crosses of groups, like people that have, you know, these three characteristics. And so what we do now, or what the banks have been doing, is they go in and they look at these specifically and they say, okay, group A has you know, better treatment than group B. So therefore it models discrimination. That's, and that's not, it's not a good, that's not a good thing to do. Why? Because this is what we call population bias. Population bias is that the population, so if we took every possible person out there and we looked at them, if their average for their group is necessarily higher or lower, 
That is a population problem that needs to be addressed by politics, um, new rules, other things outside of what you're doing as a modeler. Okay, a modeler is just to price risk. You're not to go in and look at things and say, well, I want everybody to have the exact same price. And I want everybody to, and then you start thinking like, then what's the point of even modeling? If everyone just gets the same price and we don't care if people make money or lose money, right? I mean, First Republic Bank, uh, SVB, um, Credit Suisse. I mean, we can just, Bear Stearns. Like we can just start throwing (laughs) these names out there. People aren't managing their risk and risk is trying to figure out how much risk a consumer has. I don't care where, like who that person is in the sense of like what they do for a job, which I had this question in this presentation I gave and someone's like, but what if the person's a trader and they're making lots of money? You should give them great treatment. And I'm like, you know, what if somebody was, I don't know, something sketchy or something you just don't morally approve with and they have, you know, consistent payments and they're the same as a trader. Would you, like, I don't understand. Why would you differentiate between two jobs? Like, it just doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand people. Um, but the reality is what we do in credit risk is we try to price everyone the same based off of their characteristics that are only financial characteristics or the ability to pay. And so I made this presentation and as I'm making it, you know, I'm talking about the way that these firms are doing it. And I'm like, I, I know they're doing it this way, but I kind of feel bad because it makes them look stupid because it's a really stupid way to do it. You shouldn't be looking at the population bias, which is group A has higher value than group B. What you should be looking at is dissecting your data into different subgroups and then looking at how these differ across the model residuals. So what I mean by this is you can plot out um, the residuals on one axis. Typically, I put it on the x-axis on the bottom. And then on the y-axis, uh, you put the, the thing you're modeling. So your APR, which is your interest rate for that loan, or the amount that you're willing to finance or lend out to somebody on the, that axis. And you look at it as a population in a group. And what you want to see is that you want to have random spread and pattern across the entire model. And what I mean by this is that there's randomness Um, there's random errors. Like we make mistakes or somebody just happens to be better than they look on paper. But for these specific groups, so say group A and group B, we want to see them that they are randomly scattered so that on average, I'm making the same mistake. So group A might be getting better treatment because they're a better group. They just financially perform better than group B. Now, again, we don't want to get into the nitty gritties. That's not my job as a bank or a financial institution or a fintech firm or a quant fund or a trading institution. Like you shouldn't be out there picking winners and losers because you have a political agenda or a political opinion or a personal opinion. And so you start looking at this and if you look at this correctly, you can see, okay, group A on average is spread across these residuals, meaning we price them within a specific range. On average, we misprice them by about X amount. Of course, their average is zero, but you know you have under and over pricing, and that's the model error because life is complicated and messy, uh, and people get new jobs and things happen. People get fired and risks change over time, and we can't capture every single possible scenario in the world. And on the same thing, you should look at Group B that's being priced lower, for example. And you want to make sure they have a nice spread as well in a similar range, meaning on average, we're mispricing them by about the same as the other group. This implies the model itself doesn't have a bias. Because what it's showing is that two groups might have on average different performances based on the population. Um, But what we're trying to figure out is, is the model itself creating an additional bias? And so in this presentation I give, um, I gave, uh, I actually showed an example 
of how you could take two benign variables, so variables that are harmless, they look amazing, they're financial metrics, almost every bank's using them, and how you can use different sorts of machine learning methods and find a meaningful relationship between the two. And then when you turn that into a pricing model, for example, or a risk model, so pricing the risk here, um, then what you end up seeing with this is that it actually gives you the inverse operation of what you would expect. So those that you already know from business intuition that are going to be safer are getting uh, priced worse. And those that are going to be worse are going to get priced a lot better. So we want to make sure that we're pricing everybody fairly. And again, this is where the scare with machine learning, AI, and all that's coming in. And I agree with it because most people aren't actually diving into these, you know, different ways of looking at your residuals from the model and trying to figure out if the model is biased, right? That's what bias is. It's modeling bias. We want to see if the model is biased. Um, and that leads me into what, so I made this whole presentation, gave it at UTD and I gave it at Princeton. And some events occurred between this whole period of me making the presentation, me giving the presentation at these events. And my craziness just completely evaporated. And I thought, you know, I am not crazy at all. As I saw at an interaction with someone that was a consultant at one of the big, big names. And they gave a similar presentation on this topic of machine learning. And they're going through this whole presentation talking about ESG and environmentalism. And they really care about these things. You know, pat myself on the back. We're such a good company. And all the companies we work with, all these big banks are amazing. And then they get into modeling bias. And this guy is a leading expert in machine learning and AI because he's been in the industry apparently since the 90s. He's never built a model because he doesn't have the background to build the models, but he's been a consultant, so therefore that obviously qualifies you. And as he's talking, I'm just looking at this guy, like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Your presentation is 100% fluff. And then the slide, the slide that just hits me in this presentation is that there was like, they mentioned they have 30 or 32, I believe it was 30, they have 30 different definitions of bias. And when you hire us out there, we're such a good company, you can pick and choose which biases you want to pick. And so you can pick your definitions and, you know, make it sure that it fits your company's culture and values. I, I can't even make this stuff up. I can't even believe it. It's hard coming from a math background. So anyone watching this as a math background is going to completely understand me. Those of you that are like not mathy, but you're real socially people, you'll probably be a little offended. But there's only one definition for bias. A model has mathematical bias. It's an actual thing. You can actually measure this. Like you're, there's metrics around this. this. This is what we're looking at. It's not a personal opinion where you put it in and you go, you know what, Dimitri, and I put this in my presentations, you're a beekeeper, right? So let me say, I like beekeepers better. We're going to give you an extra 10 points. And oh, I, I think, you know, I don't know. You work at a strip club. That's not a very morally acceptable job. I'm going to reduce you points. I'm going to give you terrible ratings. I'm going to reduce you. Like, that's a terrible. Like, why are we picking and choosing winners and losers based off of our personal preferences or our political preferences and affiliations? And as this individual keeps going on with this presentation, it's just the whole ESG slant. It's all going through every slide in detail and talking about how these things impact, you know, bias. And so we need to make sure that we're not biased. So not biased in air quotes here, meaning I need to pick and choose what I think you should be doing. And if I don't agree with what you're doing, I am going to tell these firms and institutions they should change what they're doing and just not work with you or give you really bad rates. 
And so I watched this presentation. It was, it like, it makes my skin like crawl. Like I'm so frustrated and so irritated. Like you can't be pushing this. You cannot. And this person's like higher up at the consulting firm. And it's like, this is the advice that's being given across the institutions. And it's not just banking. These consulting firms work with everybody. And they're out there panhandling and pushing and being like, yeah, give us some more money. We'll tell you how to make a definition for this. We'll tell you which groups we want to screw over. Come bring in your political bias on top of this. And then I'm sitting at work talking about this to someone. And they go, Dimitri, did you not see the news article? And I'm like, what news article? And they said, the Joe Biden uh, mortgage stuff. You know, they're going to charge you 40 bucks for these for having good credit. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, no. This, is, this isn't a thing. They're like, Dimitri, look it up. Look it up on your phone. It just happened. So I pull up an article. So I'm trying to look on here on the internet. So I'm talking to you guys. I'm looking at this up. I've tried to figure out the exact details of the deal because I'm like, this can't be. Yeah, this, this can be. Okay, so let me lay out what's going on with this now on why this is all playing into this. So now Joe Biden, his infinite wisdom of cronies over here. Anyone now that is going to have a house or a loan of 400000 or more um, and has a credit score of, I believe, 680. If you start digging through these articles, the numbers are all kind of the same, but people take a different perspective on it. And I'm trying to just get like, what's the exact rule? Um, so I believe it's the credit score of 680 is going to be charged. I believe it's $40 per payment. And I, I'm not going to do the math here for you guys, but somebody mentioned that like on a $400,000 loan, uh, I think it's like a 30 year loan and they you know, you have to have the rates and all. They put it all in there. It's like an additional $14,000 in fees. So this new proposed rule is going to be if you buy a house that's more than 400000 and your credit score is better than 680 you're going to pay 40 extra dollars. And what are we going to do with that 40 extra dollars? Hypothetically, they're going to give it to those people with lower credit scores to level the playing field. And the... What they're trying to say, which is 100% incorrect and wrong, is they're going to redistribute the wealth. That's what they're, it's wealth, just wealth redistribution. It's just not fair. These people have bad credit scores. So let me just briefly talk about why this is complete crap. Uh, first off here, the average house median value. So not the average price. The median value in the third quarter of 2022 in the United States was $392,000. Okay, so the middle value of a house. So... That's a big chunk of the population that's going to have a house at 400000 or more. That's not just the super wealthy. That's what they're trying to imply here by passing this rule is, you don't worry about it. We just need your votes. So we're going to take money from rich people and give it to poor people. And you're going to love me because I'm making it cheaper for you. So therefore, it's going to make me wealthier and get me more votes. And I will get you know a little bit more clout here and we'll, get, we'll win these elections here. I think that's what this is tying into. I don't really know. I don't know. You can draw your own conclusions on this. Um, but it's weird that the basically the median price is almost 400000 and yet half the population is going to be right above that for house values. And then when you start looking at this now from the 680 credit score here, so I just search in here in Google here. This one is the Vantage score, which I know is slightly different. It's from Equifax, uh, not the FICO score. I don't know which credit score they're using, either the government so if you don't know, uh, your credit scores, you can have like Vantage score, you can have FICO score, there's like a TransUnion score, there's like, there's a bunch of different scores by these different credit bureaus. Every bank actually generates their own credit score internally, if it's a big bank. 
So surprise. Um, a lot of them actually won't use FICO. They'll actually build their own scorecards that are custom built on their consumers, which is why I'm concerned now that we're creating biases in the models because we have agendas to pass with it, which is the whole consulting issue. Um, but even if you're using this, the average credit score in the United States is 690. So essentially, it looks like we're taking 680 and 400. We're taking half the population and taking, saying, okay, those of you that have a mortgage on the upper half, we're going to take money from you and we're going to try to give it to those in the bottom half. But it's not really based on wealth because let's get into credit scores here for a second. Um, one, uh, for credit scores, credit scores take into consideration your incomes for some of the variables. An average credit scorecard model has around 30 variables. It's kind of the rule of thumb we like to stick with when developing these. And I have a book here so I can read out some generic uh, examples of this. Um, but a lot of the variables that go in there, for example, is like LTV, which is loan to value. So if you buy, for example, a house, say it's 400000 and it's been valued at 400000 your LTV is one. Now, an LTV goes up, so say you take a loan for 800000 and your house is only worth $400,000, uh, that's an LTV of two. Uh, you're basically underwater. Like, you've basically borrowed more money than it's actually worth. So if you took the loan today and you try to sell the house tomorrow, uh, in the case of having, you know, $800,000 loan on a $400,000 house, and you bought it today got the loan, uh, sold it tomorrow for 400000 because that's what it's worth, uh, your LTV of two, what ends up happening is now the 400000 covers half that loan. You still owe $400,000, okay? This has nothing to do with wealth. This is just common sense, right? Like, okay. Now, thinking about this going backwards a little bit, um, those people that have more money, of course, could actually pay for the house in the sense that, uh, the loan might need to be much smaller. So maybe you already owned a previous house, you sold that smaller house, you're getting a bigger house. Uh, and say you, I don't know, you had $200,000 in equity in the other house, but you're rolling over to the new house. So you only need a loan of 200,000 to cover the other half. So you have 200,000, uh, you're gonna borrow 200,000 in a loan, and that's gonna give you the 400,000 of that house value. Uh, in that case, you're only gonna have an LTV of 0.5. So it makes sense, right? Uh, but again, these people aren't necessarily wealthy. They might just be older. So now you're discriminating based on age, which is against the law. But hey, what, what do I know? Um, and so again, this is just financial responsibility. If somebody buys a house at the age of, I don't know, 22, 23, 24, 25, and it's a tiny, small house, maybe it's a $100,000 little shanty, and they pay off that house in, I don't know, 10 years or something, 20 years, 30 years, whatever their rate is, even on a really tiny budget with tiny, tiny financials. And then they end up, you know, selling that house and getting a slightly bigger house. Uh, in this example here, they would have a really high uh, credit score because LTV is one of these main drivers in many of these scores. And so what happens is you're penalizing now people who are financially responsible. Uh, other examples of this, so again, income can be put in there. So income is one of those ones where you can say, oh, well, I'm leveling the playing field. I'm just screwing rich people. No, you're screwing a bunch of poor people too that are just financially responsible, which is sad. And everyone's against this for the most part in the financial industry, but I don't know why this is going through. Um, other examples, though, would be, uh, you know, the oldest trade. So, uh, again, customers that have just older lines of trade. Again, this is like age-based. But when you have, you know, credit history of 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you're going to be pretty safe because obviously you can look back at that data and say, okay, now we're going to look at the other variables that play into this model. Um, like, for example, how many defaults have you had in a lifetime? Or how many defaults have you had in the last five years? Or how many defaults have you had in the last 
30 days or something. Uh, you can look at these sorts of variables and then combine them with things, for example, like longest credit history and realize this person had a long credit history. They've made a lot of good decisions. It's just that you make smart financial decisions. You live within your financial means. Um, two other examples I just wanted to throw out here too as I'm reading through this book um, is total limit for credit card. Uh, we also call this a lot of times that revolving credit. So if you have like credit cards open, uh, what is your total limit? So typically those that are more financially responsible over time, again, responsibility is what we're trying to model is how much risk you have. I don't care how much, like if you're rich or poor, I care how financially responsible you are. I've worked in subprime for years. So I, we try to make loans to people that are on the lower end of the spectrum. But again, what we're trying to look at here is we're trying to see, you know, if you had a lot of credit available to you, right, it's probably because you've built that up over time by making good financial decisions, just paying your bills on time. And then on top of that, you have utilization rate, which is the last one I was going to mention here. And utilization rate is how much of your lines of credit available to you are you actually utilizing. So say you have, for simple math here, a $10,000 total line of credit between all your credit cards. Um, and out of that utilization, you're only using a thousand every month, right? 10%. So, I mean, 10%, that's not really that much. Now, if you have a customer coming that's at 90%, they're going to be maxed out. They're just making poor financial decisions, right? They have to have all these credit cards. They're probably opening more credit cards to cover the other credit cards. And they're just stacking this debt. And what's going to end up happening is they're going to end up defaulting because they can't afford the credit here. Anyways, to wrap this up though, I don't know what the heck's going on with all this. Um, it seems really odd that I'm making these videos and then, you know, I'm like hesitant because I know they're touchy topics like about hiring practices and about defining biases and about coming up with ESG definitions as well that are tying into these biases and picking how you set your models up now. And now we don't like that the models are accurate because that's bad. So we want to change these biases based on our ESG scores and of personal opinions. And then on top of that, now we have our president who's decided to try to mandate uh, a $40 fine for having good credit and penalizing people with good credit. Uh, and trying to redistribute that to people that have poor credit. Um, and you have poor credit because you make bad financial decisions. And you can fix your credit. So even if you make a bunch of bad decisions, uh, you can decide, okay, I'm going to live within my means. I'm going to try to improve my education and my job prospects. And when I say education, I don't mean college. I just mean education, like trade schools and you know extra types of training, online learning, all that. So anyways, I think we're going into a little bit of a insanity here. Um, it looks like for me on my personal opinion, this seems to be a lot of a political slant and a political bias here. Like firms are like not going along with ESG because they want to and they believe in it. Everybody's afraid they're going to get smeared by different parties and different people involved with it. And they don't want bad publicity and bad stunts. And of course, I think a lot of them think they're doing the right thing in the sense that, you know, like, well, of course, we don't want to just discriminate. And of course, we care about the environment. Um, but they're kind of throwing out the window. Well, there's limited resources. You have to pick and choose your battles on what you're you know, going to do. And just as a side note, as a kind of wrap up point, I'm scrolling through LinkedIn here a few minutes ago before I shot this video. And I saw somebody post a whole article on all the slave mines for cobalt going on in Africa. And again, it was children labor. I don't know if they're slaves or not, but it was horrible conditions here. Uh, I've seen some articles though with like essentially slave labor in India with brick manufacturers and credit. Again, 
bad situations to be in. Uh, with the Cobalt lines, though, there's a lot of just horrible things going on behind the scenes with these. And again, these are all things we need for the electronic revolution. We're going to move everything to electricity. So electric cars, electric this, electric that. Like, we're saving the world. It's renewable. Um, but we're ignoring the fact that we're having to make batteries, uh, which take Cobalt and Lithium and a bunch of other products. And we're just completely ignoring the fact that these are playing into that as well. And again, these aren't putting in being put into the ESG calculations by most people because, you know, it's an inconvenient truth to realize there are consequences, there are pros and cons, and nobody's actually done a full, robust analytical analysis of this to figure out what's going on with this. So I don't know what's going on, but this just seems like insanity here. We are kind of throwing quant finance out the window. We're throwing common sense out the window. We're throwing math out the window. Like we just have personal opinions and beliefs. We have no data to back it. And we just want to redistribute wealth and be a socialist country. And that's kind of the gist I'm feeling I'm getting from a lot of the politics and policymakers and, and banks and federal organizations, governments, and, you know, everyone involved in this. It seems like we're kind of being like led down this path and people are just kind of going with it because it sounds like the right thing to do, but nobody's stopping to say like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, like this mortgage thing just sounds like insanity and I'm not even going to get into the, you know, markets and players involved and how the house market uh, is starting to crash now and how this is going to add on to it. And anyways, it's a whole thing. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Let me know what your opinions are in the comments below. And as always, until next time.